This episode of the Officer Don Memorial Podcast is brought to you by our friends at the Law Enforcement Today radio show. Check out the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast, which started as a podcast in 2017. It's a syndicated radio show broadcasting to millions of people every week. Crime and or trauma stories from those that have been there. Hosted by a retired police sergeant. Find the Law Enforcement Today podcast on major podcast platforms or online at letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. It's host to over 13 lakes, wetlands, the Mississippi River, creeks, and waterfalls. It's also the largest city in Minnesota and made its name early on in the flour mill industry. The city of Minneapolis was developed around St. Anthony Falls, which is the highest waterfall on the Mississippi River, used as a source of energy in Minnesota. A lumber industry was built around forests in northern Minnesota, and 17 sawmills operated from energy provided by this waterfall. By 1871, the river's west bank had 23 businesses, including flour mills, woolen mills, ironworks, a railroad machine shop, and mills for cotton, paper, sashes, and wood planing. Grain grown in the Great Plains was shipped by rail to the city's 34 flour mills. A 1989 Minnesota Archaeological Society analysis of the Minneapolis Riverfront describes the use of water power in Minneapolis between 1880 and 1930 as the greatest direct drive water power center the world has ever seen. The industry gave Minneapolis bragging rights as the flour milling capital of the world. Bill Clinton was elected the 42nd President of the United States. To provide that proven leadership is our challenge in 1992, and that is why today I proudly announce my candidacy for President of the United States of America. After 30 years, 66-year-old Johnny Carson hosts The Tonight Show on NBC for the 4,531st episode which would be his last episode. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. The largest shopping mall in the U.S., Minnesota's Mall of America, constructed on 78 acres, opened in Bloomington this year. The year was 1992. 
1992 was a big year for Minneapolis, Minnesota. With over 63,000 in attendance, the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome was the home of Super Bowl 26 in January, when the Redskins defeated the Bills 37 to 24. This was their first time hosting the Super Bowl and was a big deal for the city of Minneapolis. Live at the Metrodome in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Washington Redskins, the Buffalo Bills, Super Bowl number 26. I'm Pat Summerall here with John Madden and... Jerome Victor Hoff. He was the first of four children born to Clarence and Alvina in Minneapolis on New Year's Eve in 1938. After graduating from high school at Roseville High School in the class of 1956, Jerry served in the U.S. Air Force from August of 1956 to August of 1960. In September of 1961, he married his wife, Marilyn, and they settled in their hometown of Minneapolis, where they'd raised their three children, Jerome, James, and Cynthia. They met in ninth grade, and of course, it, you know, to say it was love at first sight, not even close. She didn't like him. He, he was just, you know, yeah, whatever. And so my dad goes off into the military after they gra he graduated in 56. And he's only 17 at this time when he graduates. He joined the Air Force. When he came home on leave, he decided to, you know, go see some friends and people he knows. So he took his younger brother, Butch, with him to go see his old music teacher. Well, my mom was there because she was in their concert, the Wheat Band, playing the accordion. And they got to talking. And then my dad volunteered to walk her home. So they walked home. And... A good mile and a half or so, she thinks. And they talked and talked and talked and decided to go up that night. Just one slight problem. They forgot Butch at the music studio. So they had to go all the way back to go get him. But then, you know, they just talked and my dad was in station down in Florida and my mom was supposed to go down there to see him. This was, I think, March of 1960. So they started dating late 58, 59. And, then, and so in March of 60, she was going to go down there. And my grandmother became ill and didn't want her to go. So she stayed home. The flight she was supposed to be on crashed in Indiana, no survivors. Illinois 710, Kansas City, do you read? Air Illinois Flight 710 crashes 25 miles north of Carbondale Airport. Cindy and her two brothers would grow up in Minnesota as cops kids. Well, my first memories of having a dad as a cop. I didn't know he was a cop when I was in kindergarten. I didn't know what he did. All I knew is the question came up at school, what does your dad do? And I said, well, he plays in the street with cars because I've only saw him directing traffic. And my mom had to go in and explain that, no, he was a police officer and, you know. So we moved out of Minneapolis to a St. Paul suburb and this was the early 70s. And one of the kids called my dad a pig. I'm like, what? He's not a pig. No, you're just a pig, pig. So I asked my dad, what is a pig? And he goes, well, it means pretty intelligent guy. And it's like, oh, okay. So from then on, whenever I, I, he was, you know, called him pig, I'm like, yep, you bet. <laughs> you're right, he is. Jerry started his career in law enforcement with the Minneapolis Police Department back in April of 1962. However, his career didn't start as you may expect. 
My dad had a really good friend named Jim who wanted to be a cop. And back in those days, you just took the test. And the more you took the test, the further you got. Well, Jim didn't want to go alone, so my dad's like, oh, I'll go with you. I'll take the test. One passed, one didn't. My dad passed, his friend didn't. So more tests, more training. And in April 23rd, 1962, he became a police officer. So seven months after getting married, he's now a police officer. Two months later, my brother's born. And then my parents celebrated their first anniversary. And nine months later, my brother Jim was born. Then they celebrated again, and I was born. They stopped celebrating after that. From 1987 to 1992, Minneapolis had recruited between 200 and 300 officers, increasing the roster to 831 sworn. Jerry was badge number 2590. Personable, talkative, friendly. The kind of person that would give you the shirt off his back. That's how many described Officer Jerome Hoff. Most referred to him as Jerry. Fun-loving. He really was. He loved to go fishing and camping. We used to go camping with other cop families. And he would bring his accordion with him. And at, at night, we'd all sit around the fire, whether we were making Polish or roasting marshmallows, and we'd all be singing songs around the campfire. My mom's parents had a cabin that is on a lake, so that's where he would go, and he loved water skiing. And he he taught all of us kids how to water ski, our friends' kids how to water ski, their friends' kids water ski, strangers how to water ski. I still can remember, you know, he'd be holding you, you know, tip back to, you know, hit it. Or if he was driving and you fell, he would jump in and get me. You know, he'd circle around and he'd always jump in and get me. He wouldn't jump in for anyone else. I was his little girl, so yeah. Named after Jerry, Jerome was his oldest son. He loved walleye fishing. We, we would um, go to Malax Lake. His dad and him, um, Grandpa built a, a fish house. And we kept it up there, and we uh, they would uh, the one resort would drag it out there to wherever the fishing was, and we would go up there in the winter time and fish. And almost every weekend we would be up there. Um, even when he was injured, he would be up there fishing um, until he had a doctor's appointment or or you know some type of meeting to go to. He, he would stay on the lake. I mean, he just loved to fish. Jerry made arrests. He wrote many citations, but he did it in a more respectful way. With literally thousands of contacts over the years and virtually no complaints from the public, Jerry was very well liked within his community as well as within his agency. And he was just a few short months from retirement. It was the fall of 1992. Minneapolis had a diverse population back then of just over 350,000 people. According to Gangs in America, there are around 32 active gangs, with about 2,600 members identified as being central to gang violence in Minneapolis. Some of the gangs with the most contact with Minneapolis PD include the Bloods, the Crips, the Black Peastones, Gangster Disciples, and Serenios 13. Among this list, there are 15 gangs described with men and women of all races and all ethnic backgrounds. 
Few are more diverse than the Vice Lords, short for the almighty Vice Lord Nation. The Vice Lords Gang is the second largest and one of the oldest street and prison gangs out of Chicago, Illinois. It was founded in 1957 and has grown to between 30,000 and 35,000 members. While the majority of the members are African-American males, some sets have recruited female members, as well as members from other races and ethnic backgrounds, white, Latino, Asian, Somali, and Native Americans. Minneapolis police referred to the area of Lake Street as a gang war zone where competing cartels carried out periodic battles over turf. If you go north of Lake Street, it was populated by Hispanic gangs such as Sereños 13 and Varos Locos. South of Lake, there were more African-American gangs like the Rolling 30s, Bloods, the Gangster Disciples, and the Vice Lords. Tensions between African-Americans and police across the country were running hot all summer long after widespread violence erupted in Los Angeles in the aftermath of the acquittal in April of four white Los Angeles Police Department officers in the videotaped beating of Rodney King. Violence resulting in more than 60 people dying and 2,300 injured in days of fires, looting, and violence that followed the verdict. Thousands of fires burned, and property damage was estimated at $1 billion. In May of 1992, a young 14-year-old black teenager was riding his bicycle across the lawn of a North Minneapolis home when he was shot by the homeowner. Soon after the shooting, rumors circulated around that area of the city that the shooter was white. No peace, no justice flyers were being distributed everywhere around the city, saying a police officer had shot the young man. The home was firebombed about an hour after the shooting. A television reporter was beaten with a broken nose and a concussion. Her cameraman was also treated for a concussion, both treated at a local hospital. A minister who responded to the area to help restore order, he was shot in the leg and finger and was being treated. Fortunately, the young boy survived the shooting. The homeowner who shot him was 66-year-old Robert Coins. He was arrested and charged with second-degree attempted murder and first-degree attempted assault. Coins was actually African-American. This was just one example of how Minneapolis was really a powder keg back then, like many communities across the country since the Rodney King incident. An incident feeling problems in the community already struggling with violent gang activity, a growing drug trade, and record homicide numbers. This trend would eventually earn Minneapolis the nickname Murderapolis after record homicide numbers. Marvin Rorvik served over 40 years as a law enforcement officer in Minnesota. Back then, he was a veteran police officer with the Minneapolis Police Department. He was serving as a detective in homicide. At some point there, Minneapolis was called Murderapolis because of the number of murders that were going on. And there were several Hennepin County Sheriff's detectives that were loaned to the homicide office to help out because we were overwhelmed with calls. Retired Minneapolis Lieutenant Bob Kroll served over 30 years in law enforcement in Minnesota. He started his career with Minneapolis in 1989. There was an 
influx of gangs. There was an influx of the crack wave. You know, we were we were years behind L.A. and and a little bit behind Chicago, but our big influx where we were getting people from Chicago, from Detroit, and from Gary, Indiana, and the crack trade was just booming. That the gang crimes, in addition, you know, basically they were stealing and everything, but but a lot of the violence and a lot of the things that I would handle in homicide was gang on gang warfare and killing. One of the things that I recall a young gang member was murdered and I went to interview his mother to learn about who his friends and enemies may be and she refused to talk to me. The mother of a dead boy refused to talk to me because I was a cop. You don't trust cops with this kind of information. She's more loyal to the gangs than she was to her son. By 1992, Sharif Willis had been a Vice Lords member for 25 years and had a long history of violence as a gang member. Willis served time in prison in Illinois for an armed robbery in the 1970s. He was paroled from prison in 1989 on a murder conviction for shooting a man in Minneapolis during a dispute over a craps game. And surprisingly, he would eventually become the leader of a controversial movement in the early 1990s called United for Peace. The supposed goal of the organization was to bring together rival gangs and law enforcement in an effort to stop shootings and gang violence in Minneapolis. Willis claimed to have the bloods, the souls, and the disciples at the table along with his gang, the Vice Lords. Willis was wearing essentially two hats during this time as he claimed to be a leader for peace in Minneapolis. However, he still held the title of Chief Minister of Justice for the Vice Lords, the violent gang he'd been involved with for over two decades. That was the gang members that were, you know, playing that they had been, you know, um, reformed. They had several meetings and they were with appointed people, deputy chiefs, the big one, uh, Deputy Chief Dave Dabrotka was the liaison through them and, and work through this. But Sharif Willis was one of the big ones. The Reverend Jerry McAfee, um, several of the same players that are still around today now in one way, shape, or form were part of that United for Peace. And that was pushed by, you know, the, the police administration. At the time, Minneapolis leadership and police administration appeared to agree to an alliance with United for Peace even calling on them to help calm the situation in May when the teenage boy was shot. Some would argue that Minneapolis leaders were making a deal with the devil, so to speak, in a futile attempt to quell the violence in their city. Today, in the Twin Cities metro area, Twin Cities meaning Minneapolis and St. Paul, Metro Transit police officers respond to and investigate all crimes that are reported on buses, light rail, commuter trains, facilities, and rights of way throughout the eight-county region, and they assist partner law enforcement agencies as needed. As of 2022, the department had more than 100 full-time officers. However, back in 1992, there was really no Metro Transit Police. So city officers, including Minneapolis police officers, would do transit patrol in their city. It was September 24th, 1992. 
Earlier that day, Jerry's daughter, Cindy, had an interesting conversation with her four-year-old son about his grandpa. My parents had just gotten back from camping that weekend previously, where they took Laura camping. They always would take her everywhere that they could. And my dad called up and said, hey, can you come over and help me get the camper back up and going? We're going down to Iowa to find some friends for their anniversary. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll be right over. Grab John, get in the car. I lived in Anoka. My parents lived in Northern Maple Grove. So it's like seven miles. Now on the way, John's sitting in the seat and going, how come Grandpa get killed? What? How Grandpa get killed? I couldn't understand what he was really saying, thinking that he must have met my Grandpa. You know, and he's four and a half. So I explained that people get sick and, you know, they can die and, you know, just the basic stuff. And it's like, no, how Grandpa get killed? And I said, well, people do get killed. That's when the bad guys and the good guys, you know, get together, you know, fight each other. And sometimes the bad guys win and people can die that way. He goes, oh, just then we pulled up into my dad's driveway. And John goes, I'm going to miss Grandpa when he get killed today. I walked in the house and told my mom about it. And she's like, whoa, I hope that, what? She couldn't believe it either. That evening in Minneapolis, police were called to remove a passenger in North Minneapolis who didn't have a bus fare. The man was black and was also blind. An altercation broke out. A crowd formed and in a brief tense exchange, one of the cops got punched. The word being spread on the streets was that the cops beat up a blind black man on the bus. A.C. Ford Jr. was a 25-year-old born in 1966. He was African-American. He was a Minneapolis man who was, at the time, reportedly second in command of the Vice Lords in Minneapolis. After hearing rumors about the man on the bus, several Vice Lords gang members went with A.C. Ford to a meeting conducted by police and community members taking place at Minneapolis North High School that evening. Vice Lords leader Sharif Willis was also there. Minneapolis Police Chief John Lux and other officials were there and they were trying to explain the incident on the bus and trying to calm down those in attendance. In the middle of this meeting, a group wanted to know what authorities were going to do about this blind black bus rider that was thrown off the bus for not paying his fare. That it was just another example of police brutality and police insensitivity. During that meeting, someone outside even broke the windshield of a Minneapolis squad car in the parking lot. After the community meeting, A.C. Ford Jr., along with other Vice Lords gang members, uh, Shannon Bowles, M. Waddy Pepe McKenzie, Monterey Willis, who is Sharif Willis's nephew, and a 15-year-old named Richard Wright met at the home of Sharif Willis, discussing how they should respond to the alleged beating of the black man on the bus earlier in the evening by Minneapolis PD. According to court records, Ford said to the others, you all ready to do this? This is what we're going to do. We're going to walk up to the number five bus line and shoot the bus driver. Testimony even indicated that Mackenzie, who was there with his girlfriend, asked her if she'd be willing to shoot a bus driver. She said she would. 
Monterey Willis, nephew of Sharif, was one of the gang members there and replied, No, man, you must be crazy. Ford then suggested, All right, let's do the pizza shack. Bowles was often armed. His weapon of choice was a 357 revolver. He used 38 caliber ammunition. It was well known that the gang members at Sharif's house would keep their guns in paper bags in the freezer on the porch. They retrieved Bull's gun and another gun that Mackenzie took from the freezer. The decision was made. They were going to do the pizza shack. Wright and Mackenzie left Willis's apartment in a tan four-door Ford Granada that Wright had rented from a guy in exchange for crack cocaine earlier in the evening. They were following the white Ford Bronco carrying Ford, Bulls, and Monterey Willis. Mackenzie told Wright, we're going to the pizza shack and kill a cop. The pizza shack was a local pizza restaurant located on the corner of East Lake Street and 17th in Minneapolis. It was really popular among the locals. It was a 24-hour restaurant and had been open over 25 years. It was known for having the best pizza, best chicken, best JoJo's, and the best French bread in the area. Back in 1992, there were few restaurants that were open 24 hours, and the Pizza Shack had become known as a cop restaurant. Anytime, day or night, you would often find cops there taking their breaks, working on paperwork, etc. Jerry Hoff was one of those officers who would frequent the Pizza Shack at least once a week during his shift. It was after bar close in the early morning hours of September 25th, 1992. The two vehicles from Sharif's place arrived in the area of the restaurant. Mackenzie jumped out of the car driven by Wright and Bowles jumped out of the Bronco and they headed towards the pizza shack on foot. Both men were wearing red. One had a red baseball cap, the other had a red t-shirt. The Vice Lord's primary color is red, just like that of the Bloods. Mackenzie and Bowles walked into the restaurant. It was reported that they ordered some food, and then one of them stood directly behind Jerry, less than 10 feet from him. The other quickly walked to the back of the restaurant towards the kitchen, looking at the far tables and then returning to the area behind Jerry. Jerry was sitting with Reserve Officer Margaret Hapsch, who was riding with him that night, and then recently retired Gerald Labarski was also sitting with him in the middle of the restaurant, facing west. The restaurant had two doors, one to Jerry's right on Lake Street, and the main entrance was somewhat behind him to the right in the corner. There were 10 to 15 customers and employees there in the restaurant at the time. Jerry, Margaret, and Gerald were sitting at a table that was known as a cop's table in the restaurant. Jerry had paperwork to complete from a DWI arrest he had just completed earlier in the evening. Rob Glad was a cook working that night in the kitchen. He told police he heard two pops, and at first he thought they were firecrackers. A waitress who was working reported getting thrown down by Jerry to the ground when shots were fired. When she got up, she said he was laying there face down. One customer, Gerald Labarski, was slightly wounded with a bullet that grazed his arm. Mackenzie and Bowles stood behind the officers. They pulled revolvers from their belts and they started firing towards Jerry from behind. It was 1.45 a.m. 
Mackenzie and Bowles then ran out of the restaurant. Another cook who was working that night, last name Simonson, was carrying his own pistol and chased them. At least one of the suspects fired twice at the cook, grazing the glass to the left of the main door and going through the plate glass window to the right of the front door. The two shooters crossed Lake Street on foot and headed north on 17th Avenue. Jerry got on his radio and reported Officer Down. The one thing officers and dispatchers pray that they never ever hear during their career is Officer Down. When this is called out on the radio, you know you have a fellow officer in need of help, and absolutely everyone responds to assist. Officers arrived within four minutes of jury calling out. Officers and EMTs found Jerry face down on the floor. They immediately started CPR, and he was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center. Back at the pizza shack, police had barricaded the sidewalk. They were keeping all customers and staff inside while they investigated the shooting. Fearful of gang retribution, police requested television crews at the scene not videotape witnesses as they left the restaurant. Phone calls in the middle of the night are never any good. And I received a phone call after still being awake, thinking what John had said, and I was watching a movie about ghosts. The Minneapolis Police Department said that there had been an incident and that I was to come down to Hennepin County Medical Center to see my mom and, you know, see my dad. Oh, okay. And they asked, you know, how long do you think? I'm like, oh, half hour, you know, we'll see, you know. Because once again, I live in Anoka, which is 25 miles north of Minneapolis. So I go in, wake up my then husband, David, and said, you know, there's something happened in Minneapolis to my dad. I need to go down to county. And, you know, if it was, if it was bad, they would have someone come and get me. Those words were hanging in the air when the phone rings. That's when I knew my dad was dead because they sent a sergeant out to get me. At around 3.40 a.m., in spite of a four-minute response time for help from his fellow officers and all the amazing work done by the ambulance crew and the hospital staff, they still weren't able to save him. Officer Jerry Hoff was dead. Word quickly got back to the officers at the shooting scene. They were now on the hunt for cop killers. A short time later, Cindy was transported to the hospital by the Minneapolis sergeant. My mom was there, a couple of my dad's partners, my uncle was there. 
and he had already passed at that point. And then after a little later, they took me over to see him. And, you know, they pulled back the sheet and yeah. <laughs> you know, luckily I was just by myself. You know, had my time with him. And, and it's, you know, that's how I got to say bye. Now, the challenge would be contacting family members before they found out about Jerry's murder on the news, especially his 84-year-old mother, who had been hospitalized in St. Paul for a heart issue just a few days earlier. And then the race is on, because it's 4 o'clock in the morning now, and we have to beat the TV station in notifying everyone. So my uncle, who was there, thank God he was there, he helped me deal with my aunt and, you know, the cousins. But my grandmother was in the hospital in South Minneapolis. She had had a little heart problem a couple of days earlier. And we didn't want her to find out from anyone else what was going on. So we called the hospital, talked to the nurse and said, do not let her have any visitors. Don't allow newspapers. Don't allow radio, TV, nothing. So they made it doctor's orders that, you know, because she asked why she couldn't have any. Well, the doctor wants to keep you nice and quiet today so you can leave in a little bit because my dad was scheduled to pick her up that morning. So I'm at the hospital with my uncle, and he suggested that we bring my cousin, who was studying to be a priest at the time. So we go in there, and all of a sudden, my, my uncle and my cousin can't speak. And my grandmother is so excited because, oh, Cindy's here to take me home. And I had to tell her that her firstborn child had been murdered. I have never heard a scream so loud and painful in my life. And I've never heard it since. It just echoed. Everyone on the whole floor heard it. My dad and I always had this joke that when someone would, uh, when he dies, he's going to make sure that they would wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning to tell me that he's been killed. And the joke was because the times I would call him, he happened to be sleeping. Because I was always, I was never really in the same time zone as, as, as they were by being in the Air Force. So uh, there was a few times we woke, I woke him up and he's like, I'm gonna get even with you one of these days. It's like, yeah, sure, Dad. So the, the phone rang at three o'clock in the morning and I saw the time, picked up the phone, and before I even knew who was on the other end, I said, what happened to dad? And my poor uncle was trying to tell me, and all he could say was he was shot. And I kept going, well, how bad is it? Well, he's been shot. It's like, okay, he's been shot. It's not like the first time he's been injured. And Cindy got on the phone and says, he's dead. Get your, you know, what over here. And so I um, pretty much dropped down and like, what? And then I realized I had to get tickets. Plus, no one could get a hold of my other brother because he was actually in the Air Force down in Miami for Hurricane Andrews. So no one could get a hold of him. And about three days prior to that, he calls me up and says, hey, we finally got a uh, landline. Here's the phone number. And of course, the phone number was at work. So I traveled to the base. I got to the base. I, I called um, the phone number. 
And uh, an airman answered the phone, and I said, this is Sergeant Hoff. I need to speak to Sergeant Hoff right now. And the kid's like, well, he's sleeping. I said, I don't care. You wake up Sergeant Hoff right now. He needs to be at the phone. And the guy went straight to where he was sleeping, woke him up, got on the phone. And, of course, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, what happened to Dad? And I says, he's been shot. He has died. They want us uh, back to Minneapolis as soon as possible. So, you know, we tell her, and now it's close to noon, you know, when we finally step out. And I go to the visitor's lounge just to collect myself. And the news is on, and there's my dad's face. And I just start crying. It's like, my God, this is really happening. Cindy and her family spent the rest of the day making arrangements while her in-laws took her kids home for the day. They made arrangements with the funeral home, they met with the family priest at church, and then later it was time to go home and talk to her kids, seven-year-old Laura and four-year-old John, about their grandfather. Go home that night, sit him down, and we talked about how Grandpa was a good guy. Grandpa is such a good guy. He's a policeman, and they knew he was a cop and a policeman and, and everything. And we explained that, you know, sometimes the bad guys win. And Grandpa died. And I got the most softest crying that, you know, you can hear. I just, you know, started crying. We took, took him over to my mom's house because they wanted to see Grandma. And John walks in the door, goes to the first cop he sees, which is my dad's old partner, Larry, and said, are you going to catch the bad guys that killed my grandpa? Now, Larry had been on the force, you know, 30 years or close to it. Old veteran, big tough guy. He had to turn around and he cried. So, old cops do cry. Richard Wright had circled the block several times after watching McKenzie and Bowles walk into the pizza shack. Wright eventually parked and walked towards the pizza shack when he saw a police car nearby. He watched for two or three minutes and then he went back to his car and he drove to the home of Ed Harris, who was another gang member who lived just a block from the restaurant. McKenzie and Bowles had fled the pizza shack on foot and they ran to Ed Harris's house after the shooting. They were there when Wright arrived. McKenzie told Wright he thought he'd shot a cop. Ed Harris's wife would later testify that Bowles and McKenzie initially told her they had shot a crippled man and they asked for help hiding their guns. They wrapped the guns in Bowles and McKenzie's bloody shirts. They put them in a paper bag and then they hid them in the attic. McKenzie and Bowles also asked if they could clean up their hands to get rid of any gunpowder residue. By the time Wright arrived, Bowles and McKenzie had already changed their shirts, their shoes, hats, disposed of their guns, and washed their hands. Shortly after Wright arrived at the Harris home and found McKenzie and Bowles there, the three of them left the house. Jerry's killing triggered a massive search, resulting in an unprecedented $50,000 reward. Over 100 officers fanned out from the shooting scene at the corner of Lake Street and 17th Avenue South. 
The block-by-block search was aided by others, including Minneapolis Fire Department and Hennepin County Sheriff's Office. Fifteen investigators, including six homicide investigators, were also brought in to help. I was in homicide, and, and I was due to come in at 7 o'clock or so. Anyway, I got a call probably in the vicinity of 0 to 30, and I was home in bed sleeping. I got up, answered the phone, and the captain or his lieutenant said, Terry Hoff's been killed. We need you to come in and help out. I jumped in the shower and cried. Officers searching the area did stop at Harris's house right away, being so close to the pizza shack and being the home of a known Vice Lord's gang member. But at the time, they didn't find anything suspicious. Jerry's killers had already fled the house. My old partner, Greg Hirsch, called me at like 3, 4 in the morning. And after he was one of the, even though, you know, it happened on Lake Street and 5th and 3rd Precincts bordered, so he was one of the first squads in when the call came out because they were they were bordering precincts. And when it all got stabilized and said and done, he called me and I woke up to the phone ring and I was on SWAT, so I had always the phone next to me. But he says, and now he, he said they killed a cop. I'm like, what's up? It's, you know, it's 4 in the morning, but they, they killed a cop tonight. And the pizza shack was our hangout. I mean, we were there all the time. You know, that's where you went to write your reports. That's where you went to have coffee. That's where you went to have, uh, OTL. And it was, you know, the ultimate insult because they, they killed a cop inside a cop hangout. Lonnie Anderson was the manager of the pizza shack that night, and he refused to talk to reporters out front, telling them he just watched a friend of his die and that he was fed up with this. Over the next several days, black leaders in the community made impassioned pleas for peace and calm, both in the streets and in news conferences. They expressed fears that the police might overreact and the case could poison race relations in the city. Race relations that were already struggling. There was a lot of anger, a lot of resentment against the police administration because they were part of this United for Peace sham in our eyes, you know, and, and the, the cops were out for, you know, out for vengeance. They wanted to find out who did it. And everybody is working like you never worked before. Um, stop and frisk people, you know, ask investigatory stop questions, that type of stuff. And we were out in full force and, and, you know, really pounding the pavement to get some answers on what happened in the coming days. The black community complained cops were targeting black men because of their color, that the search was racist from the start. When confronted with this, Minneapolis police would argue that they were simply looking for the suspects that were described. Two young black males with clothing that would indicate a gang affiliation with the vice lords. They argued this wasn't about race. This was about cop killers. This was about finding and prosecuting those responsible for killing one of their own, for killing a Minneapolis police officer. Then the political finger pointing started. Condemnation came quickly from the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis, who blamed the killing on Mayor Frazier, Chief Locks, and the City Council, explaining that their policies had done nothing to reduce the crime problem the citizens fear and that the police must face. The Police Officers Federation also said that more serious threats had been made in the 24 hours before Jerry was killed and that city leaders didn't act on the threats. 
Chief Locks called the shooting a cold-blooded assassination, a cold-blooded murder that had no place in this city. He said the very fabric of this community was now threatened, that we have crossed the line, that nobody can tolerate this. He indicated that for quite some time their agency had heard rumors that officers were going to be killed. However, he said there was no reason to think threats in recent days were any more credible. During this unprecedented manhunt in Minneapolis, police investigators working leads were contacted by one of Bull's roommates, Eugene McDaniel. On the day of the shooting, McDaniel, who was being held on unrelated charges in the Anoka County Jail, told authorities that he had telephoned both Bulls and Monterey Willis from the jail. McDaniel stated that from the two separate phone calls, he had learned that Bulls and Monterey had been involved in the killing and were preparing to flee to Texas in a black Cadillac or a Chevrolet Beretta. McDaniels told investigators that Bulls and Monterey were at Sharif Willis's home. I was in the office answering phones, and at, at one point, well, it was actually at 8 o'clock at night, I got a call from Detective Boss at the Noka County Sheriff's Office saying that they had a Eugene McDaniel in custody, and he had had access to a telephone and contacted Lieutenant, and then he contacted Detective Boss and said he's got some interesting information about Officer Hoff's murder. So I talked to him on the phone, and, and uh, he, he had what he had found out about the murder. I suppose he was watching TV or something. But he got on the phone with, with a bunch of gang members, some of the same people that were involved to some extent in this case, and spoke with them and got information. And... I imagine he was in custody on a gun charge and he probably was looking to get an easy ride and he, he was willing to talk to us about it. Less than 24 hours after Jerry was murdered, police were now on their way to Sharif Willis's home. They found the Cadillac packed with clothing and they arrested both Bulls and Monterey Willis. While in custody, both Bulls and Willis received their Miranda warning and were questioned briefly and released. At that time, the police still didn't have enough evidence to hold them. Reports indicate that it was after this Monterey Willis fled to Chicago. Mackenzie, the other shooter, had also fled to Chicago to stay with Naomi Willis, who was Sharif Willis's sister. While staying with Naomi Willis, Mackenzie met Wyvonia Williams. Williams would testify that Mackenzie told her that the officer had been shot because they were upset about a blind man being harassed on a bus. She testified that Mackenzie said, Sharif put the hit out on the officer and that A.C. Ford was in charge of it. She further testified that Mackenzie told her he rode in a car with Ford and Monterey Willis to the pizza shack. During the next two weeks, Minneapolis police investigators interviewed hundreds of locals and gang members in search of Jerry's killers. Sergeant Jackson testified that in the days following Jerry's murder, police questioned Ed Harris on two different occasions regarding the homicide. Ed's wife said a number of people saw her husband leave their place with the police, which prompted Vice Lord member Ernest Parker to accuse Ed Harris of snitching to the police, even though Ed insisted he had not given them any information. On October 9th, the Vice Lords held a meeting. Ed Harris was aware of the possibility of being disciplined for not attending, but he was reluctant to attend, in part because he was concerned that the police might show up at the meeting because of him. 
Prior to the meeting, a number of vice lords came to the Harris house and asked if he was going, but he told the members he could not because his wife was at work and he had to babysit the kids. His wife would later testify that, in reality, she was hiding in the bedroom. Lee Rockymore, another vice lord member who attended the meeting that night. After the meeting, he overheard the vice lords A.C. Ford, Steve Banks, Ernest Parker, and Larry Florney talk about Ed being shut down because he was snitching. This same group, along with Richard Wright, would leave after the meeting. They were headed to the Harris home. On their way, Florney told Rocky Moore that he was going to shut him down, referring to Ed Harris, and showed him a handgun that he brought with him. Ed Harris's wife would testify that after Florney and Rocky Moore arrived at the Harris house, she overheard Florney tell Harris that he would be disciplined for missing the meeting. She further testified that at some point, Florney asked Harris to take him on a marijuana run. As Harris was preparing to leave, Florney and Rocky Moore joked about how they were going to go hurt somebody. Richard Wright testified that he was under the impression that they were going to go to a fight with a rival gang member named Matt. Ed Harris commented that he had not had a good fight in a long time. Florney, Rocky Moore, Harris, Wright, and Steve Banks then all left the Harris home in two cars, with Harris, Floyd, and Richard in Harris's car, and Banks and Rocky Moore in Banks's car. After driving for a short while, Banks signaled Harris to stop so Rocky Moore could join them in Harris's car. Rocky Moore told the others that Banks had someplace to go, and Florney commented that Banks knows where to go. Florney then directed Harris to park in the alley behind 3333 Clinton Avenue. Harris parked, and they all got out of the car and began to walk into the alley. Rocky Moore, who knew that Florney was about to shoot Harris, turned to Wright and told him, When I run, you better run too. Wright said that Florey came up behind Harris and shot him in the back of the head. After the first shot, Harris fell to his knees, then forward onto the ground. Wright said he heard five to six shots, and then after the shooting stopped, they all took off running until they reached Florney's house where Banks was waiting for them. Florney explained that Harris was killed because he was snitching, and he told Wright, don't be next. Rocky Moore and Wright were instructed to say that they had gone to buy some weed and got into some gangsters and began to run, but Harris was big, and he couldn't run that fast, and he got caught. Banks then dropped Florney and Wright off at one street corner and Rocky Moore at another. Florney and Wright then went back to Harris's house. Florney told Ed Harris's wife that they had gone to purchase weed. He said an argument broke out. He said someone shot in the air and then everyone ran off, but Harris still hadn't returned. Ed's wife told them, go find her husband. She noticed that Florney appeared calm while Wright appeared to be surprised and in shock. After Florney and Wright left, she went to Curly's, which was a nearby restaurant often frequented by the vice lords. When she arrived, she saw Florney and other vice lords sitting in the restaurant. She was surprised to see them there since Florney had told her that they were going to go look for her husband. It was October 9th, 1992, around 10.45 p.m. The Minneapolis police received a call reporting gunshots in the alley behind 3333 Clinton Avenue South in Minneapolis. 
When police arrived in the alley, they found the body of Edward Harris, face down with his hands above his head and with multiple gunshot wounds. An autopsy later determined that the body had multiple gunshot injuries, including a gunshot to the back of the head, two to the right arm, one to the left shoulder, and three wounds to the left arm. The gunshot to the back of the head was the fatal shot that killed Ed Harris. A few hours later, at 2 a.m. on October 10th, the police went to the Harris house and informed Mrs. Harris that her husband, Ed, had been killed. They explained that they received a call reporting gunshots in the alley behind 3333 Clinton Avenue South in Minneapolis. They said when they got there, they discovered the body of her husband face down with his hands above his head and multiple gunshot wounds. Harris became hysterical upon hearing the news and refused to talk to police. However, a few hours later, at around 4.30 a.m., after the police returned to the station, they received a call from Ed Harris's wife. She informed them that she had a lot to say. She feared for the safety of her children, and she wanted to ensure that they would be safe and protected. Later that day, she informed police that she believed her husband's murder was related to the murder of the Minneapolis police officer. Ed Harris's wife's statement broke the Hoff murder case wide open and started the investigation against four of the men involved, Mackenzie, Bowles, Willis, and Wright. The hunt was on, and now Minneapolis PD knew who they were looking for. There was a, a young man involved in the case. We found out at some point that he was the driver for the killers, and his name was Richard Wright. His family knew that he was in a bad position and put him on a plane to Alabama where his grandparents were living. My partner and I got wind of this, and we jumped in a plane and flew to Alabama. And we got the address and we walked up to the right house there and knocked on the door. African-American gentleman answered the door and we told him who we were and showed him our badges. He invited us in very kindly. We told him that we were there to talk to Richie. And he said, yep, he's just here, I'll go get him. And he and his wife brought Richie up and invited us in, sat us all down at the dining room table. And this man said, Richie, these are Minneapolis police officers here to talk to you about something very important. I want to make sure you tell them the truth. So we sat there and they got some pot, pot of, you know, put the coffee on and we sat there just like me and invited and Richie gave us his story. On November 16th, just over seven weeks after Jerry was murdered, a felony complaint was filed in Hennepin County Court against A.C. Ford Jr., Amwadi Pepe McKenzie, and Shannon Noah Bowles for first-degree murder in the killing of Jerry Hoff. Bail for each set at $3 million. This number would also be argued by some in the community as racist, that it was unreasonably high, more of a ransom than a fair bail. Now, officers would work to locate their four suspects. AC Ford Jr. was arrested that same day in Minneapolis, and he was formally charged. 
Monterey Willis was located in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. He'd been arrested in November for participating in a home invasion that resulted in the stabbing murder of a Chicago man. On November 19th, Willis was interviewed by Minneapolis Police Sergeants James DeConcini and Mark Lenzen regarding the Hoff murder. During the interview, Monterey explained that he wanted to speak to officers, but he was concerned that he would be killed if he were to cooperate with authorities. He was promised steps that would be taken to ensure his safety, including protection if he served time, based on the information that he provided, and that he would be given witness protection upon release. He eventually admitted to his involvement and described what took place that night. On December 15th, Monterey Willis was indicted. Shannon Bowles was also found in custody on unrelated charges and was indicted for the murder of Jerry Hoff. On November 24th, news staff from CARE 11, along with some local community leaders, went to Chicago and they returned with Amwadi Pepe McKenzie, who then turned himself in to be charged. Or one of the shooters was Amwadi Pepe McKenzie. And this stunt that was pulled then because Ellison was the attorney that represented all the gang members. We would see him in and out of court. We would see him in and out of the, in the interview room at the jail. Uh, he, was a, he was a city hall figure because that's what he did. He was a defense attorney for the gangs. And what happened with McKenzie, CARE 11, reporter Rick Coachella, CARE 11 had a private jet go to, they funded, they funded a private flight to bring back McKenzie from Chicago and surrender him with the United for Peace head. McAfee was one, Ellison was there too, and they did a big production surrendering him to police at our city hall. And the theory with these mouthpieces like those guys were, if we didn't do this on live television, the cops would execute them. That was what Ellison did on that one, his grandstanding that, and never mind, like I said, I had already transported Monterey Willis, and he says, you know, he wanted kill me don't you and like and but guess what he made it into the courthouse untouched and was released and picked up another time untouched but the big grandstanding they did was if they didn't surrender this shooter of a cop on television with a live camera crew the cops are going to execute him which again was a false narrative but that was Ellis doing Richard Wright the 15 year old juvenile was also arrested and held but not immediately charged Ford, Bowles, and McKenzie would be formally indicted on three counts, first-degree murder, murder of a police officer, and attempted premeditated first-degree murder of Gerald Lebarski. Jerry's funeral was held on Tuesday, September 29th at the Church of St. Helena. It was the family church. That was where he grew up, where he had his first communion where he married, where his children were baptized and had their communion, and where he was buried. It was only about six houses away from my grandparents' house. We consider that the family church. Um, he was baptized there, confirmed there. He got married there. I even had my baptism there, my first Eucharist. And Grandpa was actually one of the elders um, he was the caretaker for the church, and Grandma was the caretaker for the uh, Monsignor when he was alive, and then um, also helped uh, take care of the priest himself. So when we say St. Helens was the family church, we really meant it. It was, you know, a Catholic Mass, you know, funeral plus Catholic Mass, and 
we had one of my dad's partners boat and told stories about him, how he could, you know, chase a guy down, you know, tackle him, put handcuffs on him, say, now, how about those twins? <laughs> and one time he had pulled someone over for traveling very fast. And he goes, hey, let me see your pilot's license. And the guy pulls out a pilot's license. He was a pilot for Northwest. So <laughs> he got offered a warning. You know, just a sense of humor about all his his um, traffic stops and, you know, dealing with people. He always would try and joke with them to, to get them into a lighter mood. And as we're sitting in the front of the church, sometime where you, you know, sit down and all you hear is da 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 It's all the flashlights and guns hitting the pews. So that's all you could hear was the echo of da 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 all the way down. So we, we start laughing because it's just so funny. And a friend of mine was there and she's like, yeah, we saw you all crying. It's like, we weren't crying, we were laughing. So thankfully, you know, it wasn't well enough where people heard it, but it just, yeah, it's just one of those things. And so in front of the actual church itself, there was police officers on both sides, at least 10 deep. There was people standing in the parking lot across the street, one direction was is a elementary. They were let out of the school, and they were all lined up. Kitty quarter across from the corner, there was a house with a little hill on it. And like I said, we we grew up in that neighborhood, and he was always chasing us off his little hill because we would always roll down it because it was so much fun. And he was always chasing us off. He actually having people stand on his lawn. So, I mean, so we got all those people, and I'm six foot two, so I am kind of tall. And I'm in front with mom, and we start walking up the stairway. And I look inside the church, and all I could say to mom is, the church is full. And she looked at me like, the church is what? I said, it's full. The church houses about 2,000 people, and it was packed. There was cars parked everywhere, uh, like the parking lot was full, the, all the streets. I mean, there, there was enough room for us to drive down the center of the road because there was no way, nowhere else to go. They double parked everywhere. So we got in the church, and I mean, like I said, it was packed. And where the choir would sing, it was packed. There was a, what they call the crying room, it was packed. So it, it was like, this is unbelievable. When they made the route, they made it long because they figured there's going to be a lot of cars. So they're going to make it kind of looping around and take nothing but side streets as much as they could. They made it seven miles long and it took an hour and a half before the very last car even left the church. And the last car was actually a tow truck who always worked with my dad and said that he wanted to be the one to, you know, be the last because he always cleaned up after Jerry is how we put it and then we're going up in the hill a slight hill and we're you know it's kind of a weird limo not your traditional back, just one big back seat and I look back and all I can see are flashing blue lights I wish I had a camera it was so beautiful unfortunately police officers know how to bury their dead and they do it with such grace and dignity. 
that it just took our breath away. Riding with my ex-partner and in, in, in the squad car in the funeral parade, and there were people lined up along the sidewalk, waving and saluting and so on and so forth. And I was looking up. I was the passenger, and I was looking out the right-hand side and crying again. And I glanced over my left shoulder to look at my partner who was driving, and he was crying too. Hundreds of officers from the five-state area attended, along with hundreds of citizens. The streets along the procession route were lined with people, paying respects to this hero. A hero who wasn't murdered because of who he was. There was no indication these four ever had any contact with him. He was murdered because of what he was. Simply because he was a police officer. The trial itself was significantly shaped by certain trial court decisions that were later unsuccessfully raised on appeal, especially on matters relating to the jury. Much of the defense's argument stemmed around race, which further fueled race relations within this community. The trial court denied the defense motions for a change of venue and for a veneer panel, which is a panel of people chosen from the neighborhood surrounding the crime scene. Of particular concern to the defense was the fact that only 25% of the persons summoned for the jury pool responded. Further, during the jury selection process, three otherwise qualified jurors who were financially unable to sit were, at their own request, excused from service. In addition, one juror also asked to be excused for personal and financial hardship on the first day of trial. Overall, 59 potential jurors went through the jury selection process, which extended from September 1st, 1993 until September 31st. During selection proceedings, the defense counsel challenged that the makeup of the jury was not representative of a fair cross-section of the community. The trial court made a finding that the jury pool was properly selected at random using the broadest feasible cross-section of the population of the area served by the court. The court trial also authorized the use of an anonymous jury over the objections of the defense. At a pretrial hearing on August 13th of 93, defense counsel asked the trial court if it intended to use an anonymous jury. At that time, no objections were made and the court took the matter under advisement. On August 30th, the trial court gave a preliminary instruction to the entire jury pool of 59. These instructions included an explanation for the use of anonymity, which had been prepared by defense counsel. At that time, the trial court said jurors were told their names, but not their addresses or phone numbers, would be known to the judge, court administration staff, and the attorneys. The reason for this was to make sure that jurors were not bothered by anyone, whether it be the media or anyone else with an interest in this case, trying to have any kind of an influence on them. The court indicated it was going to proceed this way to make absolutely sure that each juror who decides the case does so solely on the evidence produced in court and under the rules of law and evidence as they will be applied. The defense would argue that by making this an anonymous jury, the court was already tainting the jury, so to speak. They were implying that the four defendants were dangerous gang members, suggesting that this was a necessary step to further protect jurors chosen. Another argument from the defense team was that their clients couldn't get a fair trial because there were no black people on the jury. The jury did include an Asian woman, a Hispanic woman, a Puerto Rican man, and a man from Malaysia. Several African-American citizens were interviewed for jury service but were excused for various reasons. 
Authorities argued it was just as racist to suggest that if black people were on the jury, the outcome would have been different merely because of that fact. They argued that would suggest that people think differently merely because of their skin color. One of the lead investigators in this case was also African-American, but this fact was glazed over by the defense team. The reality was the community of Minneapolis was afraid, a fear born from violence, a fear of these defendants' affiliation with the vice lords. The fear really had nothing to do with the color of their skin. They were afraid of gang retaliation if they served on the jury, plain and simple. Even the defendants were afraid to testify. They were asking police for protection from gang retaliation. Ironic that these gang members who allegedly ordered the killing of a police officer and another alleged gang snitch were now asking the police for help to protect them from Sharif Willis's vice lords. Minneapolis police never recovered the guns used in the shooting. However, the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy on Jerry's body determined the gunshot wounds were caused by large caliber handguns. Forensic tests revealing that the bullets and bullet fragments recovered from the restaurant and from Jerry's body were consistent with 38 and 357 caliber ammunition and appeared to have been fired from revolvers. Further, the absence of shell casings at the scene led police to conclude the weapons used in the shooting were revolvers. The revolvers that were taken from Sharif Willis's home by Mackenzie and Bowles. In October of 1994, Monterey Willis was found guilty of first-degree murder in that home invasion in Illinois. A year later, a Hennepin County jury found him guilty and he received a sentence of life imprisonment for first-degree murder of Officer Jerry Hoff and 220 months for the attempted murder of Labarski. The trial court ordered in his case that the attempted murder sentence run concurrently to the first-degree murder sentence, but that the Minnesota sentence run consecutively to the Illinois murder sentence. On October 23, 1993, M. Wadi Pepe McKenzie was convicted in Hennepin County District Court of first-degree murder of a peace officer for the shooting death of Jerry Hoff. The district court imposed the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. This conviction upset family members and officers because McKenzie's sentence would ultimately be the least severe of the four, even though there was a mountain of evidence showing he was actually one of the shooters. Shannon Noah Bowles was also convicted by the anonymous Hennepin County jury of premeditated first-degree murder, first-degree murder of a peace officer, and attempted first-degree murder in connection with both the murder of Jerry Hoff and the wounding of Gerald Labarski. The trial court sentenced Bowles to two concurrent terms of life imprisonment on the first-degree murder convictions and a consecutive term of 180 months on the attempted first-degree murder conviction. In exchange for Richard Wright's agreement to testify in the trials of those accused of the Hoff and Harris murders, the state moved Wright's family at the family's request and agreed not to refer Wright for prosecution as an adult for the Hoff murder. Sharif Willis, the chief minister of justice for the vice lords at the time of the Hoff murder, was implicated but 
never charged in Jerry's murder. Even though most would argue that nothing happens within the Vice Lords without either his order or his blessing, even though the plan to kill the cop that night was made in his home, and even though the guns used to kill Jerry came from his home. Many cops back then believed Sharif Willis was a con man. He was a dangerous criminal, a violent gang member, and for over two decades had already served time in prison for murder. He was a con man who convinced city leaders and Minneapolis police leaders that the nonprofit organization he created, United for Peace, was a group that would bring gang members together and gang leaders together along with city leaders to help reduce gang violence. They would provide that proverbial bridge between gang violence police and the Minnesota African American community. Many locals and cops felt that Sharif was a con man. He convinced businesses to donate to United for Peace. A con man who was playing both sides of the fence, benefiting from both the gang and from his perceived alliance with police administration in the city. A con man who used his organization and influence to avoid being charged in Jerry's murder. After Jerry was killed, but before anyone was charged, Keith Ellison, then a criminal defense attorney, spoke at a rally Willis organized and said, The main point of our rally is to support United for Peace in its fight against the campaign of slander the police federation has been waging, according to the Pioneer Press at the time. Willis also spoke at the rally. It's history like this that leads to many within the law enforcement community shocked that Ellison would later be elected as Minnesota's top cop, the state's top law enforcement official, elected to serve as Minnesota Attorney General under Governor Tim Walz. Opponents during that campaign year would highlight what they described as Ellison's long history of supporting criminals and cop killers, citing examples like Ellison speaking with Sharif Willis at that anti-Minneapolis police rally in 1992, or in 1993 when he attended a rally at the Hennepin County Government Center for AC Ford and led the crowd in a chant of, we don't get no justice, you don't get no peace. Remember, Ellison also represented Sharif Willis later in 1995, after he was arrested for holding a dozen people hostage at gunpoint. He referred to the Minneapolis Police Department as an occupying force during a 1993 panel. And when asked if police should be required to live in Minneapolis, he said he personally wouldn't want some of these individuals near him. He spoke at a year 2000 fundraiser for Sarah Jane Olson, who evaded law enforcement until 1999. Remember her role in the 1975 attempted bombings of LA Police Department officers? CNN said that Ellison publicly defended violent fringe elements of the far left. In 2000, he spoke favorably of convicted cop killer Asada Shakur, who escaped from prison in 1979 and fled to Cuba. And it's hard to forget, in 2018, his posing with a copy of the Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which is a book that endorses political violence. Agitators who claim an affiliation with Antifa have targeted law enforcement for years. In 2018, speaking on behalf of Jerry Hoff's family, Cindy said it was like someone stabbing us when Keith Ellison was elected as Minnesota's top cop, as Minnesota's attorney general. 
Many in the community would argue that Ellison successfully got elected not because he was the best candidate for the job. He certainly didn't have any support from the law enforcement community who had really no trust in him due to his longtime association with Sharif Willis and other anti-law enforcement movements and organizations. It was because they believed many in Minnesota embraced the idea of Ellison becoming the first elected black attorney general in their state. During the trials, at least two people, including gunman M. Wadi Pepe McKenzie, testified that Sharif Willis ordered and planned the hit on Jerry Hoff. McKenzie's testimony was in part why Sharif Willis was implicated, but prosecutors never charged him, saying they lacked sufficient evidence. Ellison was also Sharif Willis's attorney three years later, when Willis was arrested and convicted for possession of cocaine and firearms after police said he held a dozen people at gunpoint in a North Minneapolis gas station. At the time, Ellison worked for the Legal Rights Center. Officer Jerry Hoff was 53 years old. He'd served in the Air Force, and he was going to retire in a few months after working 30 years as a Minneapolis police officer. He was survived by his wife, Marilyn, his daughter, Cindy, two sons, Jerome and James, his grandchildren, many family members, and many, many friends. The Hoff family, they were sentenced to life without their husband, without their father, without their grandfather. And now this family needs our help. It's been 30 years since Jerry was murdered, and one of his killers is up for parole in November of 2022. In Minnesota, they are no longer called parole hearings, they're called life hearings. M. Wadi Pepe McKenzie has a life hearing coming up on November 14th. He's currently being held at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Lionel Lakes. If you go to our website, you'll find many evidence photos. You'll find pictures and newspaper clippings covering Jerry's case. Also, if you click on the Support the Hoff Family at the top of the page, it'll take you to Jerry's page, where we'll show you how easy it is to draft a letter of support for the family and send it to the state of Minnesota to let them know you believe this cop killer should stay in prison where he belongs. You can print and mail your letter, or you can email your letter. We'll show you how to do it. And it only takes a few minutes. A few minutes that will mean the world to this family. Well, hopefully you hear that it's not just us that's asking. Society as a whole is asking. You know, you want to make a statement that you are believing justice, but if you can let someone out who can shoot a police officer in the back, you might as well open up the prison because that's what the prison is for. It's not to rehabilitate them so that they have a better life. It's to serve for taking a life by giving up your own. You know, they took a life, an important life. They deserve to spend the remainder of their life in prison. I don't think that you can take a cold-blooded killer like this and make them a decent human being by locking them up with a bunch of other killers. One major historical note for Minnesota, it's because of Jerry Hoff's murder that a push was done to change Minnesota's laws when it came to the murder of a police officer. 
prior to 1993, if you were convicted of killing a cop in Minnesota, your maximum life sentence was 30 years with the possibility of parole. Since the Hoff murder, convicted cop killers in Minnesota no longer have the possibility of parole. One of the people that was sitting at the table before my dad was killed was Pat McGowan, who at the time was the representative for the city of Maple Grove at the state legislature. And he and Connie had gotten a phone call, so they left and actually saw the cars parked in the middle of the street where the guys were getting out. Well, time goes by, and they're all talking about trials that, well, no, they're going to get out. They're, they'll be up for parole in 30 years. And he got mad because why in the world, who said, you know, why isn't there an exception for police officers? So he wrote the bill. Everyone, you know, jumped on it, approved it to change it from eligible in 30 years to be no parole. And that's because Pat was there. If you're a person of faith, say a prayer tonight for the Hoff family. This is the second time they've had to go through parole hearings, reliving this nightmare over and over again, having to worry that Jerry's killers will be freed. Remember, Jerry wasn't killed because of who he was. He was killed because of what he was. He was a Minneapolis police officer. And it wasn't how he died that made him a hero. It's how he lived. It's how he served his community faithfully for over 30 years. Thank you for helping us remember and honor Jerry Hoff. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.